Our next speaker is Dr. Carol Ward from the University of Missouri, talking about early hominid body form. Hello, I'd like to thank also um, Chris and Steve and Carta and the organizers for inviting us all here. And um, enough of the feet already, they're interesting, but we're going to move things back north for a little while. I'm going to talk about body form, specifically the torso, because that actually has quite a bit to say about how our ancestors may have moved and walked. What I'm going to give you today is sort of the simplified view, because I only have a little bit of time, but I hope it gives you a sense that when we look at not just the limbs and the lower limbs and the feet that we tend to focus on, there's really quite a bit more information we can put to the question about how our ancestors moved around. Now, why do we really care, actually, how someone like Lucy here, the poster child for human evolution moved around, well, this not only tells us about the origins of bipedality and the origins of hominins and the early evolution of hominins, but also we have to remember that natural selection can only act on last year's model, on the variation that's present. So the more that we know about early hominins and their body form and their locomotion, the more we understand about the kind of natural selection or the kind of material selection had to work on to produce our genus Homo. So it's a really important question. And aren't you tired of seeing this diagram today? Um, we've been seeing this diagram since about 1973 when this article was published in Time Life. And even though we put it up here, we talk about it, this is an iconic image. And thank you very much, Dr. Richmond, for stealing my joke. We all have T-shirts, things on the walls of our cubicles that parody this picture. It's funny. It's everywhere. Everyone, I think, in the country has seen this image or used it. But it also plays into, I think, our perceptions and our ideals of actually how human evolution evolved. You have these knuckle-walking creatures that slowly start standing up in a shuffling way, and they move around, and they finally get better and better and at it until they are us today. I think this colors a lot of the public perceptions of human evolution, and I think it's in the back of our minds even as scientists as we're looking at the fossil record because we have a feeling of this is kind of how it happened. And I think there's time with the growing fossil record. I think you've all seen here today, we're getting a much better appreciation of variation, a much more complete picture of the anatomy of all these different species of hominins that are lived, that maybe this picture, although it makes a wickedly funny t-shirt, is maybe something that we should stop paying so much attention to. So what I hope to talk about today is some of the evidence that's come to light in the last, well, I don't know, 10, 20, 30 years that really should make us question perhaps whether or not the earliest part of our lineage, these Australopithecines, were in fact shuffling around like they, are, they have been since 1973 in this time-life diagram. And you wouldn't think that we'd have a whole lot to say about the torso and the body form of these creatures because vertebrae and ribs and things are fragmentary. They don't preserve very well. But in fact, paleontologists have been dutifully out there in um, East Africa and South Africa finding fossils. And we actually, as you've seen today, have quite a number of skeletons which we can put to bear on the question of what these animals look like. I'm going to talk to you today about really just the vertebral column, pelvis, and the torso here um, of most of these, of Australia. Australopithecus afarensis and Africanus and even Homo erectus. These fellows are too new and I haven't put them in my analysis, but they're going to have a lot to say as well. So we actually have some material to work with. Now, when an animal stands upright, like a human, for example, we have a particularly unique, not just lower limb, but bipedalities manifest throughout our skeletons, particularly in our vertebral column. And if you look at the side view of human and a chimpanzee, you see some notable differences in the spine. 
Chimpanzees are like your pick your favorite quadruped here. The spine has evolved to be sort of a uniform arch structure with a series of vertebral bodies, and they have a fairly even concave, um, forwardly concave curvature to them. When humans stand upright, and this develops throughout our ontogeny from the beginning, we've been to hold our head upright, the beginning to sit upright and stand, we have a series of sinusoidal curvatures in our spine that allows us to get our center of gravity up over our supporting limbs. We don't walk around like this poor chimpanzee is here. I was challenged my students to see, if you don't, you don't like the spinal curvatures, try walking around for a couple of days like this. Come back on Monday and tell me how your back feels. It doesn't work very well. This is a very mechanically efficient way to balance our weight right over our supporting lower limbs. And it's distinctive of humans. We do not see these curvatures in other animals. Even trained monkeys that walk upright on two feet in the circuses and zoo and so forth. So this is a distinguishing human feature. So we might ask when we look back at those early Australopithecus skeletons, did they have curvatures like this? Because that might tell us if they're standing upright or if they're shuffling in a bent over posture. So the vertebral column actually here is a series of wedge-shaped blocks. And a lot of the curvatures come from stacking up a series of wedge-shaped blocks. And there's other things involved, too. Um, but in the thoracic or the rib-bearing region, this is the front of this person in the back, the spine curves forward. And these are wedge-shaped blocks that are shorter in the front than in the back. In the lumbar or lower back region, as well as in the neck, the back of the vertebra is shorter than the front. So we can measure this wedge shape of individual bones and say something about the curvature of the whole column put together. So bear with me for a moment on this graph. We can number the vertebrae from the bottom up to the top, and we can measure this wedge shape. How short is this angle? So this, on this side, positive numbers would have shorter in the front, and on this side, you'd have shorter in the back. And you could put a chimpanzee on here, and they wiggle around a little bit, but all of their vertebrae are wedged forward because that spine is curved forward all the way through the column. You put a human on here, and you see actually two peaks. This is very distinctive of anterior wedging. And then, boom, in the lower back, this is where it hurts for those of you older people like myself. Um, the wedging is posterior, and that gives you that backward curvature that causes the problems. Now we can put some fossils on here. Here's our Homo erectus boy, and it's not quite as complete, but you can kind of imagine two peaks. But sure enough, in the lower lumbar region, he's wedged. We can put Lucy on here. She doesn't have very many vertebrae, but you sort of get a two peaks. We can put a Australopithecus africanus, the distinctive two peaks, and sure enough, negative down in the bottom. We can put another Australopithecus africanus, negative in the bottom. And if we slap them all on here at one time, you can see all of them have the hint at these two distinctive peaks, but notably they have this posterior wedging at the bottom. So we can see that the distinctive human spinal curvatures are with us even as early as Australopithecus afarensis. And based on these guys, we don't seem to see a heck of a lot of variation in this pattern of curvatures. So rather than thinking of these creatures as hunched over, we can go back to our diagram and maybe put a big X through this portion of it. They weren't probably hunched forward like this. And they're actually, when you walk with bent knees and bent hips, if you walk around like this, you will naturally lean forward and flatten out your curvatures when you're walking over bent knees and bent hips. We've done a little bit of kinematic data that aren't quite ready to publish or show you yet. But in fact, we think this suggests not only is your torso upright, but your lower limbs would have been pretty well extended too. So even in the beginning of our time-life diagrams, you got a fairly upright posture to the spine. So that's something that we can learn about posture from the torso.
But if you look, for example, at the gorilla and the human here, and you look at this region, you see that they're pretty different. And other speakers have alluded to this today. The humans have this short, distinctive pelvis. We have a fairly long lumbar spine and a waist and this sort of barrel-shaped rib cage. And there's a real difference here. So can we see anything about that when we look at these fossils? Um, this picture I took from Leslie Aiello's paper. It's a very nice diagram showing the chimp and the human. You see this cone-shaped rib cage here in the chimp and a barrel shape in a human. Now, the rib cage in the torso is made up of a whole lot of little bones put together. And it's very, you don't ever find them all laid there together in the fossil record. So you have to try to make inferences from bits and pieces of the whole. And this is hard to do. And again, as other speakers have mentioned, until recently we haven't had a lot of partial skeletons to work with. So in the early 80s, this was the reconstruction of Australopithecus that was made. And I'll show you how it was done. Um, but you can see this rib shape here is very cone-shaped and very much like an ape and not particularly much like yours or mine. Here's another picture of that reconstruction of Lucy. This reconstruction was based on Lucy. And the brown parts here in this reconstruction are the parts that are fossils, and the white parts are the parts that are kind of made up. And you'll notice if you look at the rib cage, there's a heck of a lot of white parts. So when this reconstruction was made, there wasn't really a whole lot to go on. And it was really the best game in town, and it was going. But this cone-shaped rib cage has had actually quite a lot of influence on our biological interpretations of our ancestors for more even than just locomotion. If you imagine if you take your eye and you sort of connect the dots through here, what you get is sort of what would look like a really big belly, no waist kind of a shape, maybe more like our friend Ambam the gorilla here that we've all seen on YouTube, and not particularly human-like. And from this, we have made inferences about the biology and locomotion of Australopithecus. For example, there's not a lot of a waist here. And a waist is something you use to rotate your pelvis and move your spine when you're walking an efficient bipedal gait. Without a waist, you've watched an ape walk, they're kind of the torso stiff and they move back and forth. It's not nearly as fluid and efficient as our gait. We can also imagine, if you dot the lines here, there's a huge area here for a gut. And apes have very large guts. We have smaller guts, and there seems to have been a change in human evolution. But a lot of our inference for what it would have been like in Australopithecus comes, in fact, from this reconstruction. Also, this is very narrow at the top, unlike ours, and that has also been linked perhaps to tree climbing or arboreality, getting at the locomotor hypotheses for Australopithecus locomotion. And a lot of that is, in fact, based on this reconstruction, which I said was the best game in town going, but there are new fossils that have been found since the early um, of the 80s and 90s when this was published. So, for example, I'll just whiz through some of the evidence here. And some of this is older, some of this is newer, but it's been accumulating over time. This is the lower part of the vertebral column of your neck. And in a human here, you can see where the rib attaches to the vertebra here. So your very first rib, this is a neck vertebra, this is a chest vertebra here. The rib attaches at the vertebral body and then again out here. In a human, the first rib attached was the first thoracic vertebra. And you can see the facet joints here where they articulate. And a chimpanzee, on the other hand, the rib actually sits higher. So the whole chest cavity sits a little bit higher up on the neck. And you can see on the head of the first rib of a chimp, two distinct articular facets, one for this vertebra, one for this one. Um, and Jim Oman in 1986 published these pictures of Lucy. And in fact, there's only one facet. If you look more closely at some of the Australopithecus fossils, there is only one facet here. So the rib is sitting not between these vertebrae, but down lower in a slightly more human-like position. 
If you take a bird's eye view of the rib cage, this is a thoracic vertebra. This is the spinous processes, those bumps that run up and down your back back here. Um, you can see the spinous process back here. So this is the back. The person's belly would be up in the ceiling. And in a human, the ribs arc from the vertebra back around up towards your chest. In a chimpanzee, the ribs kind of shoot straight out from the vertebral column. And this is so the vertebral body is less pushed into the thoracic cavities, less invaginated. In a human, you have much greater invagination here. There's more leverage for the extensor muscles to hold up the spine, et cetera, et cetera. And that's rather different from a chimpanzee. Now, we don't have whole articulated rib cages in the fossil record, but you can see the transverse process here and where this rib would attach to the vertebra. In humans, it's swinging way back. In a chimpanzee, it's kind of sticking out to the side. And that's something we can measure because we have these vertebrae. This is a new one from the Hadar site. Um, it, and that's been found is found in the 90s, and this is Lucy, and we can actually measure the attachment of where this rib would attach and take a look at it. And if you do that for the middle thoracic vertebrae, these are separate vertebrae, we can measure this angle. In an ape, the angle is larger because the processes where the ribs attach are sticking out to the side all the way through. In a human, they tend to be lower. And in Australopithecus, both Afarensis and Africanus, they're really low which shows that those transverse processes were very dorsally inclined, that vertebral column is quite invaginated. And that is associated, again, with that upright posture. So if we looked at Australopithecus, they would have looked much more human-like, thin chim like in that cross-sectional shape of that rib cage. So the ribs are a little bit lower, and they're more in the vertebral column is more invaginated on top of that more curved spine. Now, in 2010, a second Australopithecus afarensis skull was published. This is called um, Katanumu. It was from, published by Johannes Haile Selassie and its colleagues. It's bigger than Lucy. This is a nice big male. And wonderfully, it has some reasonably complete ribs, including this complete second rib. This is the first complete one we've had. Lucy's just got little bits and pieces, and they're not very easy to work with. So what Haile Selassie and the colleagues did is they measured the neck of the rib here is where it attaches to the spine. They took the neck here, and then they measured the distance, how far it flares out, and how far it curves around the front of the rib cage. And you can make a little ratio of these and tell how curved they are. Here's a picture of a human rib. So here's the neck, and here's this blue line sitting way back here as these ribs are curving around. The gorilla, not so much. This thing just heads right out here and shoop, right back up to the midline. So they published this graph. So here's humans and um, Katanumu's vertebrae down here. They're very curved. This ratio is very low, whereas a chimpanzee and a gorilla are not. And so they could say, aha, the upper part of the rib cage where the second rib is, is not ape-like. And this might have to do with either knuckle walking, because chimps and gorillas are knuckle walkers, or I wondered if this had to do, in fact, with the shape of the rib cage when you put it together. So my undergraduate student, Sarah Bartlett, sat there and drew blue and red lines on pictures of ribs for about three weeks. And we were able to measure these not just in chimps and gorillas, but in other specimens. And here's what you see. Gibbons look like humans. And gibbons have a barrel-shaped rib cage on top. Orangutans look like chimpanzees and gorillas. They have a cone-shaped rib cage on top. And siamangs, interestingly, are somewhat in between. So what this seems to reflect is not necessarily arboreality, because gibbons are sure pretty good in the trees with their hand-over-hand brachiation, but in fact, perhaps rib cage shape, suggesting perhaps that at least this Australopithecus afarensis individual had a more dome-shaped rib cage up near the top than we had suspected previously. 
So not only does the top of the rib cage show a little bit less great ape-like um, cone shape than we thought, the bottom of the rib cage does it well. If you look again where these ribs attach to the vertebrae, they attach at the body, and they also attach on this transverse process. And if you look at the last three ribs of a human, you can see ribs 11 and 12 are floating ribs. These are the ones that people like Cher and Scarlett O'Hara get removed so they have nice small waists. Um, but this 10th rib has a big fat articulation for the transverse process. If you look at a chimpanzee, on the other hand, you see these big articulations all the way down. The lower ribs are big, and they're attached tightly to that rib cage. So they can't wiggle around in the soft tissue like our floating ribs can. When we look at Lucy, she doesn't have all of them, but we can see this is thought to be a 10th rib with a big articulation, and it has at least one rib here with no articulation at all. So there's at least one floating rib, so the bottom half of the rib cage wasn't attached maybe quite as tightly and immovably to the vertebral column in Lucy as it would be in a chimpanzee. So when we go back again to this reconstruction, I think that there is enough new fossil evidence that we can perhaps put an X through exactly this reconstruction as well. Now, if I were really artistic and clever, I would draw what I think Lucy looked like, but I'm not very good artistically. So um, I'm sorry to have done this to your diagram, Dan. This is a picture from Dan Lieberman's papers a few years ago, and it shows a chimp and a human and a Lucy skeleton using this reconstruction that was published at the time. And I'm afraid all I can do is use Photoshop pretty well, so I'm afraid I Photoshopped your, your Lucy here to give what I would consider a new and improved Lucy based on some of this new evidence. A number of changes include a rib cage that really is broader up at the top, than we had seen perhaps in the reconstructions beforehand. Um, and you know, those still fairly wide at the bottom, these are wide-bodied little individuals. But also perhaps more of a waist than we might have suspected given the fact that there are quite a number of lumbar vertebrae. I haven't showed you the evidence, but they have at least as many as us. And they would have been perhaps more mobile with more floating ribs here, so maybe they would have had more of a waist. Now, it may not be exactly like you and me, but it's also not exactly like a chimpanzee either. And I think we need to think of this evidence when we're thinking about the biology and the locomotion of these animals based on what we can see from bits and pieces of the rib cage. So we can go back to our early time life diagram and we can see these hunched over creatures that maybe wouldn't have had much way to move their waist, they would have been bent forward. And I think we can now understand that perhaps when we look at Lucy, perhaps we might think of creatures that were walking fully upright like we are. Whether or not they still climb trees, whether or not there was a shift in abandoning the trees when we went to Homo or something else going on, this doesn't necessarily speak to that. Um, because we can also look back in the fossil record that I don't have time to talk about and see that maybe our ancestors weren't exactly like chimps either. But when we have a picture of Lucy in our minds, when we have a picture of these australopithecines walking around the landscape, we need to be thinking of them perhaps as moving and looking a little bit more human-like than maybe we thought of in 1973. So thank you very much.